Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on complex illness. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brian Carlisle. I am one of the actually pretty new uh, palliative care attendings over at Grant Medical Center. It's my fourth or fifth week on the job, so glad to be here and have this opportunity to, to speak to you all. Today I'll be talking about dementia in palliative medicine. I just finished my fellowship for palliative medicine, finished in September. Um, I did a geriatrics fellowship and family medicine, sort of my path to, to arrive in, in uh, palliative medicine. So brief overview, uh, we're going to go through the subtypes of dementia, just hit the highlights, discuss, uh, discuss the dementia medication efficacy and pharmacology, and then we'll go through some strategies for caring for uh, dementia patients in both palliative care and in hospice settings. So we'll break down for what usually we'll see in practice. About two-thirds of dementia cases will be Alzheimer's type. 10 to 20% will be vascular dementia, and then Lewy body and frontotemporal temporal are probably the, the least common, but still 5 or 10% of, of all comers who have dementia. And there's rare types, other types, mixed types. Alzheimer's dementia, I think, is, so like I said, the one that you'll see the most. I like to think of it as the three A's, so aphasia, apraxia, agnosia. Aphasia is a difficulty understanding or expressing uh, spoken language or written language. So you have receptive um, aphasia and expressive aphasia. In dementia patients, especially Alzheimer's patients, uh, this is word-finding difficulties. So not being able to choose the right word, coming up with a word that is similar. So instead of saying clock, they say time. Or just even in the late stages, not being able to speak or communicate at all. Apraxia, so the um, inability to execute voluntary and, and purposeful uh, movements. So if you tell a dementia patient, show me how you brush your teeth, show me how you comb your hair, your hair they're unable to um, complete those requests. Show me how you use a spoon. They won't be able to do that, but if you put a spoon in their hand, they can actually use it. And then agnosia, difficulty with visual perception and interpretation. So I think the, the classic... Um, story would be like grandma goes for a walk she always walks the same way to the library but there's construction on one side of the street she has to cross the street and she then views the street from a different perspective and can't navigate based on that that new perspective it can also manifest itself as forgetting familiar faces so she although her vision's totally fine her interpretation of seeing and recognizing familiar faces and her brain's ability to relate them to a name, so grandkids, kids, um, she's not able to do that. So that's agnosia. So the three A's of Alzheimer's. Other common findings, uh, sleep disturbance, insomnia, um, or sleeping too much, apathy. This would be uh, the patient in the nursing home that you see that really just is content to stare out the window all day. It can be easily... Um, it can be tough to tell the difference between depression and anxiety, or depression and apathy, but apathy is very common in dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, and there's not a whole lot, even antidepressants won't really cure the, the apathy. Behavioral symptoms, so calling out, agitation, um, can happen in Alzheimer's dementia. And then depression and anxiety, 
very common whenever you have any neurologic insult, dementia, stroke, um, having depression, anxiety, is, is very common and also is actually a risk factor for dementia as well. So there's practical, uh, <laughs> some practical knowledge here. So social graces can be maintained. I always say it's like if you met this person at a cocktail party, you would never know they had dementia because you'd have a three or four minute conversation with them. You talk about the weather, you talk about just pleasantries, and then you move on, and you don't get into any deeper topics about current events, what year is it, so they can very well cover their um, disability. They have a lack of insight into their deficits, so it's always important to confirm the fa uh, history with the family. Often patients will tell me, I pay the bills, I clean the house, I go grocery shopping, but when you ask the family, well, no, dad hasn't paid the bills for years, he was right in, you know, <laughs> overdrawing the checking account. We have a cleaning lady who comes in and does the laundry and, and, um, and cleans the house. So it's always important to confirm the history with family to make sure that uh, you're getting accurate information because they do have this lack of insight into the deficits. So decline, interestingly, is in the reverse order of how you um, gain the functions. So babies are born knowing how to eat, and that's usually the last thing that, uh, that goes for Alzheimer's patients. After a few months, babies develop a social smile, which is the second to last thing that, to go. Um, and then going backwards. There's plenty of uh, cognitive testing that we can do for Alzheimer's. It's probably a, a topic for a, um, another lecture. But MMSE, slums, mocha, the fast scale, and I won't go into detail with those um, today. So in general, MMSE scores decline by about three points per year. Typically, Alzheimer's dementia, the pattern is a very slow, steady decline. Average life expectancy is 8 to 10 years, depending on when they're diagnosed and how rapidly they progress. It certainly can progress more rapidly, um, but the range is 2 to 20. So contrast this with vascular dementia, which is more of a stepwise decline. Someone will do the same for a while, and then they'll have a vascular event, and the functionality will drop off precipitously and then they'll stabilize for a while and then another vascular insult will result in another decline. Uh, usually this is memory loss in the setting of risk factors. So I guess pick on the students. What are some risk factors for just vasculopathy or vascular, vascular issues? Hypertension. Here, let me give you the mic. Actually, why don't we just pass it around to the students? We, we probably list a bunch of these. Hypertension. Diabetes. History of smoking. Uh, maybe like a hypercoagulable state. <laughs> <laughs> good. Exactly. So that's that's a good um, good summary. Diabetes, hypertension, history of MI. If someone's had, you know, peripheral stents, uh, heart attack previous history of stroke, those are all vascular risk factors. And usually with these patients you find some neurologic findings um, on exam or on cognitive exam, but you know, um, weakness, uh, hyperreflexivity, 
spasticity. Ideally, I mean, a lot of this is based from the history, but ideally some uh, neuroimaging is, is recommended to confirm findings of a lacuna stroke or a um, you know, watershed stroke. That really, I think, confirms the diagnosis if you're suspicious versus uh, Alzheimer's dementia where the imaging will just show kind of the ischemic microvascular changes or atrophy old age kind of changes. So it can be very difficult. I mean, we've all seen the elderly patient got a little bit of diabetes, a little bit of hypertension, some memory loss. Boy, the family really can't tell you if it's been a steady decline or stepwise, maybe a little bit of both. So it can be difficult to uh, tell the difference. And vascular dementia, I think there's a more variability for how the decline can happen. Alzheimer's is more predictable. Vascular, it depends on how bad the risk factors are. Um, I've seen folks with vascular dementia go downhill very quickly. They have AFib, they have bad diabetes, they've had three heart attacks, and they're continuing to smoke, and before you know it, two years, they've lost almost all of their, their cognitive abilities. But I've seen cases, too, where they turn it around, they quit smoking, diabetes gets under control, and they um, can survive for much, much longer. So uh, generally more, more variable um, in that course. So Lewy body dementia, you will see some cases of this. I, I think the next two are more easily misdiagnosed or missed. Lewy body dementia, fluctuating sensorium. So that means fluctuating uh, attention span alertness, and this can, can come and go. They'll just have episodes of, of confusion that resolve. This is the, the kind of the striking feature that really will jump out at you is visual hallucinations and usually they're very well defined so it's not um, colors general pictures it's very vivid people animals um, and they can describe them they're aware of them and they're usually somewhat aware they're, they're almost always aware that they're not real and that they're hallucinations they don't believe that a dog was in the room last night, they'll say, I saw a dog last night. It was really weird. I, I don't think it was real. So animals or people is the classic. And then Parkinsonism. So rigidity, cogwheeling, tremor. In 70 to 9% of Lewy body dementia patients, you will have those findings on exam. Symptoms versus Parkinson's are usually more bilateral and milder. Parkinson's, uh, you can get dementia in the very, very late stages. For Lewy body dementia, the hallucinations, the altered sensorium, and the Parkinsonism all usually start within one year. So if someone just had a tremor, started with a tremor, and they start with these two symptoms, it's more likely to be Lewy body. If they've had Parkinson's for 15 years and then start with cognitive changes, that's dementia related to Parkinson's. Interestingly, uh, REM sleep disorder, uh, neuroleptic sensitivity, so they're very, very sensitive to receiving antipsychotics. It can make their rigidity, their tremor, their cogwheeling much worse, even at lower doses, so you have to be very careful. I think we run into problems because we use antipsychotics for the visual hallucinations, which sometimes can be frightening. I had a patient in the nursing home who was seeing a giant spider who would come and sit on his uh, ceiling at night and he didn't like spiders so but we had to be very very careful because antipsychotics are very sensitive to them and often you find them on um, Cinemet or a dopamine stimulating agent 
for their rigidity in cogwheeling. So it can be a tough battle because antipsychotics block dopamine, and so you're sort of left balancing those two things. They can get ortho, uh, have orthostasis, so a drop in blood pressure with standing. Uh, and really interesting, systematized delusions. So they can be persecutory, where the nurses are poisoning my food, people are out to get me. Usually they're very involved. I uh, had a patient who thought the picture, she had a picture frame and thought the person in the picture was actually her daughter, was trying to feed it and would protect it like you would a, a child, had uh, no insight into the fact that it was a framed picture. So the natural course, usually the Parkinsonism worsens, so their functional status declines. Uh, the hallucinations and perceptual abnormalities usually persist and, and can get worse. The decline is more of a steady decline, similar to the Alzheimer's uh, uh, diagnosis we discussed. And the average uh, prognosis is usually uh, more rapid than Alzheimer's, so it's a five to seven year prognosis with some range uh, in there. Usually the ones I've seen have been more around five years. Frontal temporal dementia, and this is a very interesting uh, topic, and there's a lot, a lot here. So this is where the other dementias affect the different parts of your brain with language, with motor function. Frontal temporal dementia affects your frontal lobes, and your frontal lobes are in charge of your executive function, your decision-making, your personality. Your frontal lobes are the area of your brain that tells you to stop. That's a stupid idea. So you can imagine the problems and issues that come about when you don't have that, um, I guess, the, the better angel on your shoulder telling you not to say or, or do, um, do things. So disinhibition, personality changes, uh, you know, usually uh, it is more common in men, usually it's the wife saying, my husband just doesn't seem like he's the same guy anymore, he's changed, he's different. They can be wildly inappropriate, uh, sexually, socially. One of the patients I had seen at the Gerlach Center was, his wife took him out to dinner and he was walking around greeting, the, he stood up, walked around to the other tables and greeted them like he was the maitre d'. A little out there. Um, he was also being uh, sexually inappropriate to friends of the family. Um, he had emailed the entire family a Anna Nicole Smith photo, and he had photoshopped his wife's head onto her body, which was very, very strange for the family to receive this email. And so socially, it, it can be just really tough on families. I mean, can you imagine? Um, and this is a guy that was very reserved only five years ago, and he, now he's <laughs> doing these things that are, are kind of out there. They can get apathy, too. Uh, some of the frontal lobe is, is motivation. Um, and then they can have compulsions around eating, cleaning, they can be very rigid in their routine and if that routine is disrupted it can result in agitation. I had a guy at uh, Grant, his dementia actually caused him to have an accident so they should present like that too where they make a very poor decision in a dangerous situation. He was riding a lawnmower at a rapid speed and thought he could make it down a rocky um, hill and it flipped and landed on him and he ended up on the trauma service and he had already he had that dementia front of temporal dementia diagnosis when he showed up so it can present like that too as, as an accident 
So there's a, a ton of other variants that can affect your language. Primary progressive aphasia is a form of frontal temporal dementia that can affect just your language. And so there's a case study of a guy who has had primary progressive aphasia and could still fly a plane, but he wasn't really able to speak. Um, it eventually gets to the other areas of your brain, but primary progressive aphasia starts as only language difficulties. So this is the one where you'll see it misdiagnosed. It'll be, they have bipolar, they have developed a personality disorder, they've developed a late life schizophrenia, and they'll be getting worked up for psych issues. Um, if they're older, frontal temporal dementia is definitely a diagnosis you should consider. It is in usually um, younger folks. And interestingly, they'll score well on cognitive testing early in the d disease because the frontal lobes are really executive function decision making. So they'll still score on a mini mental 28, 29, which is also dangerous because they can still plot things in their mind. They're still there, it's just their decision-making. So it could be a tough combination. And these progress rapidly to your prognosis in the behavioral variant once you get diagnosed. So the takeaway, I've, so often in dementia, that's what you see in the chart, dementia. And from our standpoint, I think it's important to try and figure out what flavor of the dementia is it. Is it vascular, is it Alzheimer's, is it Lewy body, um, or is it frontal temporal? because that will dictate our approach to treating it and how to uh, discuss with the family. So the treatment, vascular and Alzheimer's is similar. Frontal temporal and Lewy body require a little bit of a different approach. So the mainstays for treatment for Alzheimer's dementia, cholinesterase inhibitors and memantadine, which is Namenda. Cholinesterase inhibitors are um, Aricept or Exelon. So the general theory behind treating Alzheimer's, they found that in Alzheimer's patients, the total level of acetylcholine in the brain is decreased. And so the theory was if you increase that level, that you can have some gains in cognitive function. And so just to review, acetylcholine released by the presynaptic uh, neuron to stimulate activity or response in the postsynaptic uh, neuron. And acetylcholine esterase is what breaks down the acetylcholine in the synapse. So these medicines inhibit acetylcholine esterase, thus increase in levels of acetylcholine and uh, neurotransmission. So this study, there are statistically significant gains to be made from cholinesterase inhibitors based on this cognitive test, which is pretty long and involved, and then the mini-mental, which we can do pretty easily as, as practitioners. So you get some statistically significant gains, but there's no improvement to quality of life, which I think is important to know and be able to communicate to, to families and to patients. This study, placebo, uh, double-blind placebo-controlled trial, 12 weeks, and the net benefit of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors MMSC improved 0.8 points. So what does that mean? Hard to say, right? You know, it's one point on the MMSC. And then after six weeks, they did a washout period, and those gains disappeared. So it does not modify the course of the disease. It does make you a little better while they're on them, and so it can delay it a little bit, but it does not modify the disease. They do have side effects that are 
common. GI upset is the most common. Um, can really cause poor appetite, weight loss, and in patients who can't tell you that their stomach is upset or that they're feeling nauseous, that can be something you need to know in someone who's losing weight to consider maybe it's the medicine. Uh, it can cause syncope, bradycardia, urinary frequency, so it's all those cholinergic effects um, that are the classic board question that these medicines uh, can cause. So the three main ones, rivastigmine, Tenepazil and Galantamine. Tenepazil or Aircept is the one that I see the most. It has a longer half-life, it's a little more centrally acting, and it has a great marketing campaign. Aircept does, so that's the one that you'll see the most in the hospital. And then the second most is Rivastigmine, which is the Exelon patch. So the drug companies will tell you less side effects, less GI side effects with the patch. It works well for patients who are resistant to PO medicines. Compliance is, is a, probably a little better. It's maybe easier to remember if grandma didn't put on her patch or if she's not wearing a patch, you can tell, versus if she's not taking her pills. So compliance is probably a little better. Um, it really, the, these drugs probably all have about the same efficacy. Drug companies will tell you there's differences, but they're all about the same. And residine uh, or galantamine, similar. I hardly ever see this, this medicine. But it's important to know that it's in this group. So cholinesterase inhibitors are pr approved for mild or moderate dementia. But that doesn't mean when they get to the severe stage that you automatically stop them. There's not a lot of evidence supporting their use in severe or end-stage dementia. But it's still reasonable to use them, even though they're not FDA approved. And we'll talk a little more about that conversation later. But the key for late stage dementia, like I said, when the patient cannot communicate, is to be aware of side effects and ask yourself if the drugs are contributing. The takeaway here, Exelon patch, yeah, it's expensive. Um, patients who refuse meds or have GI side effects, Tadepazil, better marketing, longer half-life, um, Pretty much, you see the denepazil more frequently. And this is a, a chart our, my pharmacist, Andrea, made uh, for me, which is really nice. So the half-life for denepazil is 70 hours versus razodine, which is seven. Exelon takes a little longer to get up to the uh, dose that has the effect, so 12 weeks. It's a longer titration. Aircept, you see some response after three. So the second medicine that we see is uh, Nemenda, or Mamantadine. So indicated FDA approved for moderate severe dementia. And it's an MDA receptor antagonist. The theory is that it's neuroprotective because it blocks the excitatory action of glutamate at the NMDA receptor. So not indicated for mild dementia. You have to wait till they get to the moderate stage. There's some evidence of slowing rate of functional loss, some improvement um, of MMSC. And there's also evidence of helping with behavioral issues. And you use them in addition to the cholinesterase inhibitors, so there's some synergy there, or an additive effect when, when both are used. Generally pretty well tolerated, some dizziness, some GI upset. Um, I've seen behavioral issues get a little worse when I started it, but usually it's pretty well tolerated, more so than the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. And there's a, just to be aware, there's an IR and an ER. The, the, um, 
ER, they'll tell you, works a little better. I think that's, again, a medication adherence. If you take an ER and you forget, um, forget one, it'll stay in your system longer than if you take an IR and forget one. So the treatment for vascular dementia, like we talked about, is just controlling the risk factors. So antiplatelet agents, um, anticoagulants, refib, diabetes, hypertension, Aricept and Amenda do have a role in slowing the, the um, decline and giving patients more cognition. And usually like, the, the um, diagnosis can be unclear, there can be uncertainty. So in vascular dementia, we tend to put these medicines on board as well. Lewy body cholinesterase inhibitors are actually more effective than with Alzheimer's uh, for cognition. Nemenda is less effective. We tend to use them both. And again, that, they have that high sensitivity to, uh, sensitivity to neuroleptics. And in frontal temporal dementia, the cholinesterase inhibitors and uh, Nemenda are not recommended. And that's in part because they maintain that cognitive, mini, you know, the cognitive scores, the mini mental scores are still pretty good. And so the theory is that if you make the frontotemporal dementia patient smarter while still not having decision-making, it can actually make behavioral issues and can make them worse. So the takeaway, a uh, small amount of gain from these medicines, so 0.8 on the mini-mental, it's all that we have. So there's not a whole slew of dementia medications that we can use. It's not like chemotherapy drugs, like statins, like diabetes medicines. I mean, there's re it's really limited. So it's the only tool we have, which is why we use them. If you think of it from a population medicine standpoint, if you have millions of people with dementia in the nursing home and they all are a little better, the staff can have more time to care for each individual. If they can help out with their care a little more, they're all a little more with it. As a population, we all benefit, but for the individual, the benefit's pretty small. So I always tell patients it's not worth toughing, toughing out the side effects for the benefit of the, the drug. The benefit's so small. If they're losing weight because they're nauseous from the medicine, it's not like an antibiotic that you just continue through and you complete the course. It, the, if they're having side effects, it's just not worth it um, because it does not improve quality of life. So I'm interested in hearing from the fellows about experiences talking to, or cases, talking to families um, of dementia patients where you're considering stopping the medicines and, and what, that, what that's been like. Any, uh, any volunteers? Or students, too. I don't know if I've had much experience specifically with taking away the medicines, but I think, as you pointed out, the biggest thing that I've encountered is the difficulty with treating agitation, hallucination, mm -hmm. and, and think those types of behaviors yeah. and symptoms in, in patients with life-limiting illness, whether it's specifically their dementia or something else and dementia. Sure. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any additional... Uh, so that's a very good question. I'm actually doing a lecture in two or three weeks with psychotropics and behavioral issues, agitation, that sort of thing. Sure. So, I, I had kind of a little bit of a twist on, on your question. So I have seen patients that we have entered into 
home hospice or inpatient hospice and then um, trying to figure out what to do with these medications once we enter yes. them into hospice. And yep. I've seen it go both ways where mm-hmm. if they're in hospice for a re- reason other than dementia, we've continued them. And then uh, other times we just discontinue them because it's an extra pill. I just was wondering what your thoughts are on, on continuing those medications or not. Yeah, so that's that's a good question. And you we are going to run into this a lot is in our field of palliative care and definitely in the hospice field too. Um, so I, I like shared decision making where you sit down, you go over, get a good history, and you go over what could happen, what the future might look like. Because it's hard to say for sure what will happen to the patient when you stop the medicines. And I found, boy, I've really uncovered some underlying tension and emotion attached to the medicines. So the med- you don't know what the family or the patient was told when the medicines were started. Often they, and rightly so, hold their neurologist in high esteem. They followed with them for seven years. The neurologist said, this is the medicine for you. It's going to really do well. It'll treat your dementia. And so that's different than someone who was started on it and said, what I said, where it'll just give you a little bit of gain and it's not worth the side effects. So there, there's, there are different opinions out there about the medicine, um, depending, and depending on what study you read, uh, they can paint it in a different light too. So this is important to ask open-ended questions and really see where the family's at, because if, if it is the case where the neurologist talked up the medicines and started them and you know, Dr. So-and-so walks on water and you go in guns a-blazing to stop the medicines, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end badly. Uh, <laughs> I, I have made that mistake. Um, so, um, did I hit the bottom button? Okay. So this is important because you got to see, you got to meet them where they are and, and, and see what they think of the medicines. And, that's why the uh, shared decision-making is important, too. If you make it together and something, the patient declines, something happens, and they were aware and they were part of that decision, that's a much different situation than you unilaterally stopping them and then the patient declines and you feel responsible, the family maybe blames you. Um, so doing, it, doing that shared decision-making is, is the key. I think figuring out how the patient responded initially can be helpful, though not always. A patient who started the medicines showed signs of improvement is different than the patient who didn't really make that big of a difference early on. They can't tell any, any change or any gains. That's no guarantee that stopping the medicines won't make a difference, um, but it is a piece of information that can be helpful. So when you stop the medicines, that oftentimes, especially in later stages of dementia, can be the only thing propping the patient up. They're able to get some functioning done. They are very late stage, though. They're losing weight. They're not doing well. And they're mini mental. Maybe it drops a couple points if you stop it over six weeks. And so they need the family and patient, as much as the patient can be aware, need to know that it can cause decline that's irreversible. So if you stop them and then you say, uh-oh, <laughs> Grandma's going downhill quick, let's restart the medicines. The ship may have already sailed and the decline happened and you're not going to see any improvement even after restarting the medicines. Other families will say, well, geez, this was supposed to preserve some functionality. 
you know, dad is in a nursing home, he's bed bound, he's not eating, he's full care, what, what, are we, what functionality are we preserving here? And so that's the other approach. Some families will, will say that, and it does not um, improve quality of life, and some will see it as maintaining poor quality of life. So you really have to figure out where the family's coming from, what they know about the medicines. Often it's the family's way of addressing the dementia or caring for the dementia. It's an act of love to give these medicines. Um, and so stopping that is, can be viewed as stopping the, the care for the patient. So time-limited trial of medicines is usually what I recommend with a taper if possible. So if you, do it, if you have the luxury of doing a taper, you can get a gauge of how it's going versus stopping them cold turkey, maybe seeing the decline where you can't ramp them back up quickly. If you taper them, you can drop to half the dose, see how they do, and if there's no difference, then you feel more comfortable stopping them. So probably the more careful approach. But you, it is safe to discontinue without a taper, especially for severe side effects, weight loss, nausea. If someone's really suffering through side effects, just, just stop it, don't, don't taper it. it, it is safe. And just a, a geriatric side note, um, if you're stopping these medicines, consider stopping other medicines just to decrease the pill burden. Not a lot of great evidence in severe dementia or late dementia for aspirin, statins, tight blood pressure control, supplements, multivitamin, iron, calcium. While you're at it, geriatrics, uh, a lot of times less is more, especially with medicines. So the hospice perspective is a little different. Um, Qualified for hospice, fast 7A, so six words or fewer with aspiration pneumonia, pyelonephritis, sepsis, um, stage three pressure ulcer, or poor nutrition. In hospice, I ran into the cost of the medicines, especially if they're on hospice for dementia and the hospice is paying for these medicines. There isn't a lot of evidence to support their use, especially in someone who has six months or less to live. And as you can see, they're expensive. 200 bucks a month for Aricept, 366 a month for Namenda. What function are we preserving in someone who truly is comfort care with medicines who, that don't improve quality of life? So you run into this with hospice too. The pitfall here is, I think patients do have insights into the fact that hospice pays for the medicines and you can be viewed as, well, you're just trying to save some money by, by stopping the medicines which isn't untrue, um, but really the focus, I think, should be that the medicines don't improve quality of life, and if that's what we're after, true comfort care, then you really should just, uh, in a hospice setting, more strongly consider stopping the medicine. A side note on advanced directives, it's so nice when they're done at the time of diagnosis when the patient can participate they can discuss their line in the sand of what is the point where we should stop aggressive treatment. Um, my mentor, Dr. Scully, always says if he can watch a Browns game and understand what's going on somewhat and get some joy out of it, that's his line in the sand. Uh, I've heard many different, if you can still, even if you don't recognize your family members, if you can get joy out of seeing them and interacting with them, 
um, that some people's line in the sand. Other people say, if I can't, I don't want to go to a nursing home. If I'm at the point where I'm in a nursing home, then don't try and, and bring me back if I go. That's a good discussion to have because it helps out over time. It makes our jobs easier when we know what that line in the sand is too versus trying to, to guess and figure it out. And then feeding tubes, in late-stage dementia, there is a slew of evidence that feeding tubes do more harm than good. They don't, do not reduce pressure ulcers, infections. There's actually an increased risk of pneumonia. You have a patient who is bed-bound, laying flat, and you're pouring tube feed in. It's refluxing up into the lungs. They get that wet cough and can really get a, a raging pneumonia pretty quickly. Diarrhea, their body's starting to shut down and you're dumping in tube feed and it's coming out the other end uh, the same way it came in as a liquid. Um, and then physical restraints. So patients with dementia, you can't understand why they have this tube sticking out of their stomach or what that means or what it's for. And it's right there and it's easy to pull. And so they go for the tube and what do we do? Time to the bed. And then they struggle against the restraints, and then we give them medicines for agitation. So it can start this cycle of agitation of an unhappy patient, all for a feeding tube that really doesn't, uh, doesn't do much, um, does not improve quality or quantity of life compared to assisted oral feeding, which is just a one-on-one -on -one feed. So like I said, uh, a few weeks I'll talk about behavioral issues in dementia, psychotropics, get into frontotemporal dementia a little bit because that's an interesting topic of how to um, treat those patients. And you, there is a role for Aricept and Demenda for behavioral issues, and we can talk more about the evidence and thought behind that too um, at the next lecture. So I do have a sequel coming up soon. So we talked about dementia subtypes, medications, pharmacology, efficacy, and then strategies in hospice and palliative care. What questions? Can I answer any, any cases that are on your mind or things that you've seen we can go over? Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.